So Phil told me uh, that I had to abandon the lectionary this week and uh, preach on this, uh, this text. So let's do this. It's going to work. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Maybe not. Okay. Uh, can you go to the scripture? It's the beginning of that sermon slides. There we go. So this uh, scripture comes from the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, if, if you're from Hope, you have not been hearing about the Sermon on the Mount for these last weeks, but uh, I encourage you to go in, go to their podcast, go to Fellowship Bible Church's podcast, and, and eat up all the good preaching that's been happening about uh, the Sermon on the Mount. It's, one of the, it's the, the most important sermon that's ever been delivered. More has been written on the Sermon on the Mount than any other biblical text. So uh, it's a great opportunity to get that, and I get the last week, which is really cool. Um, but this comes from the very end of chapter 7 of Matthew. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 are all Sermon on the Mount. The subtext is hearers and doers in my NRSV Bible. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them, Jesus speaking, will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against the house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears the words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribe. I love this text, not only because it has a great song associated with it, but because we live near a lake. And actually, I grew up uh, pretty close to the lake in Evanston. Sorry, I didn't change there. Um, and so I have a special understanding for sand. And my mother, we grew up in Evanston. My mother, uh, our house was on a, a street called Ridge Avenue in Evanston because it was the former, when the, when the uh, lake was larger than it is today, um, many years ago, it went all the way up to Ridge Avenue. That was beachfront property. And she was very disturbed that we bought our house a couple thousand years too late because it was no longer on the beach. And so for her whole life, her whole married life, she wanted to live on the lake. And she knew that this was probably not possible financially on the Illinois side, so she thought... I want to live on the lake on the eastern shores of Lake Michigan in Michigan. And uh, my mom, she is what we like to call catalytic force. Catalytic force. My dad, every, every relationship should have a catalytic force and a slowing action. Church relationships, church leaderships, marriages. Sometimes people have to act outside of their natural role. But my dad was naturally slowing action for my mom's catalytic force. So every time my mom was like, I want to buy on the beach in Michigan, my dad would be like, not yet. But then when my dad passed away, my mom lacked the slowing action that she needed. And so I had to step into the role of being slowing action, even though all of you would know, based on my wife and I, who neither of us have a slowing action bone in our body, um, that was a difficult role for me. So several weeks ago, months ago, she called me. She said, there's a great condo in Michigan. I'm moving on it. And I said, Mom, you have a job in Evanston that you need to keep. And she said, but this is a great deal, right? 
It's a great deal. She hadn't really thought about the long-term implications. It's just a great deal right now. I got to move. She thought better of it. My mom's a really wise person. Sometimes she just has these ideas and then she thinks better of them. So she thought better of it. She said, no, I'm not going not gonna to buy on this lakefront property. Uh, give, you, give you another example. Uh, last week, I can't make this stuff up. I, I told her, you know, you, as a pastor, you're supposed to tell people you're going to use them as an illustration. So I, 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 I texted her and I said, Mom, I'm going to talk about your love for beachfront property. She said, you better not be talking about the, the man who built this house up on the sand. I said, Mom, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And then she said, P.S., I'm buying a Miata tomorrow. My mother is the brand new owner of a beautiful 1991 red convertible Miata. I didn't try to be slowing action because I was about to preach on her, so I just said, you go ahead and buy that car, Mom. Secretly, my dad was looking at Miatas for her, so it was okay. But I think that the important thing to know is that what Jesus is saying here is that people who are catalytic force, as important as they are for the kingdom of God, as important as they are to get things done, we need catalytic leaders. Sometimes they get in over their heads. They don't really think about the long-term implications of things. And actually, all of us have the proclivity at times to be catalytic and cavalier in the way that we live our lives. And so, when Jesus is preaching this sermon from the Sea of Galilee up on a mountain, it's important to note where he is with respect to his location, geography, when he's talking about building your house on rock or sand. Galilee, the city of Galilee, or the modern day where we believe Galilee, we know where it was, gets about 22 inches of rain a year. Whether you think that's a lot or a little rain, I don't know. I don't know what 22 inches is like. But, so I looked it up. I said, what other cities get 22 inches of rain a year? Well, London gets 22 inches of rain a year. If you've ever been to London, it rains all the time. But the difference between London and Galilee is that London gets 22 inches of rain a year in 300 days of rain. You think it's depressing to live in Chicago? They only have 65 days a year without rain on average. So they get 22 inches of rain, but it rains every single day just about. Galilee gets the same amount of rain, but it only rains 40 days a year. You understand where this Noah comes in, right? When it rains for 40 days straight and it never rains, the waters rise. We understand stories. But we don't really understand that here in Chicagoland because our beaches are white, sandy beaches. They're soft ground. You would really have to be an idiot to build a house on a white, sandy Lake Michigan beach. But understand that the people at the Sea of Galilee where Jesus was preaching up on a mountain, you wouldn't really have to be, you would just have to have not lived there very long to not think that you should build near the shore. See, I imagine that not only the beautiful views, but also the easy access to water supply, easy access to fishing. Sea of Galilee was a, a maritime culture where they fished for their food. Easy access to work, being close to work. These are like positive things in the ancient time. They didn't have a car to drive. You want to be close to the water because that's where you work. So walk right outside, you hop in your boat, you go fishing, you come back, you don't have to walk a long way. And the sand there was not like the sand here. Because what happens when it doesn't rain for like 300 days in a row, and it's in a hot, arid climate, is that the sand becomes like rock. It becomes very hard. It's not like the soft sand where you sink in, you can you know, play beach volleyball, feel like you're jumping in peanut butter. It's hard, rock sand. 
And so when Jesus is describing the man who built his house upon the sand, he's saying he's a fool because he doesn't know what's coming. But he's not a fool when he builds it. He's a fool when the rains come. You have to understand, the people who built their house upon the, the sand of the Sea of Galilee, their, their houses were pretty solid until they weren't. Their houses were pretty solid until they weren't. They weren't getting blown around all the time. But then when the rain would come, and like I said, it's two, 22 inches of rain in 40 days, in one period of time, mostly around January, the, the slopes that, that, that of the cliffs where Jesus was preaching, those would all disintegrate. They'd become these massive mudslides. And the rain would come down and it would sweep the houses or any structures or boats or people that were on the lakeshore. It would sweep them right into the water. And so that's what Jesus is saying in this text. Saying, look, you have to understand, it's not that you think that you're dumb when you build the house. It's that later it proves that it was a horrible mistake. And that's a really, really important understanding piece of this text. It's not initially like it seems like it's a bad idea. Initially, it seems like a really great idea. And there's nothing that would tell you that it's a bad idea until all of a sudden, it's a really bad idea. I think it's important, too, that we understand the imagery, too. Because most contemporary scholars, when they read this passage, they say that it's not necessarily about hardships in this life. It's actually what this text is talking about is that it's, it's, it's a text about the last days of judgment. That's why Jesus preached it in such a way. That it's, that it's a text about what happens at the end. And I think it's important to understand that the ancient people, they saw the sea as very dangerous. This is why it's such a radical thing when Peter walks on water. This is why they baptize people in the sea, in the water, because drowning was the most real fear. That was the top cause of death among young men, drowning when a storm came up. And so that image of being swept into the abyss, swept into a completely separate, lost forever picture, that's an important image for us to understand today. Because Americans like to talk about what will happen after we die more than any people on planet Earth. We Protestant Americans love to talk about eternal judgment. It's just like, for some reason, that was the cards that we were dealt. We were like, hey, of all the things in the Bible, I'm picking the eternal judgment, which is going to be my primary theological framework. And so when we understand that Jesus is saying, hey, look, this is a text that should, if we read about this all the time, this is a text that should give us pause. It's about being lost forever. Even though in the moment it thought, you thought it was a good idea, it's about being lost forever. And that is a really interesting, it doesn't really matter what your theological construct of hell is, whether you think it's, you know, the Dante version with the eternal fire, or you just say, oh, it's just eternal separation from God, and it's just kind of nothingness, it's the difference between nothing and something. Whatever your theological premise that you experience hell as is irrelevant for the image. The image is the image of being completely separated, totally and completely divorced from Christ. And so what's the alternative to that? Building your house upon the rock. 
Scholars show that you could actually still build your house on the sand if you dug down enough. You could dig down. You could actually still live in the same place as long as you dug down deep enough and anchored the house on the bedrock below the sand, which felt like rock, you'd actually be okay. You didn't have to completely abandon the lakeshore. You didn't have to complete, this is not Jesus's like, I hate anybody who lives on the lake. This is Jesus saying, look, you actually have to found yourself on something specifically for that purpose. You can't just go with what you feel like is that purpose. You have to go with what actually is the bedrock. And here's the thing. This is what you've been hearing about from Phil uh, if you're at Fellowship Bible Church or what you've been hearing about from me uh, just kind of generally as I preach. Uh, anything that's not founding yourself on doing the will of Christ is sinking sand. That's what this text says. And it's a very hard text. It's a very hard text. It's a text that we, le- we teach little kids. See, like, this is also interesting. We also teach kids to sing about Noah, and that's like a really scary story, right? There's only five people who make it. Um, but we teach kids, you know, the wise man built his house upon there. But this is a scary story. This is a story about people who thought they had it all right, and they didn't. There was another alternative. They should have built their house on something else. So I'm going to give you three ways, three common ways that Christians fail to do this. Because here's the thing. We could talk about how non-Christians or people who don't believe in Jesus don't build their house upon the rock or whatever. They build their house on sand. But that's not who's in this room generally. And I think Christians spend a whole lot of time talking about non-Christians. We should probably spend more time talking about us. We got enough problems right in this room. Amen? So here's three common ways that Christians fall into the trap of building their, their selves on something other than the will of Christ. The first one is this. Spending too much time trying to figure Jesus out. Before y'all get mad at me, just listen to everything I have to say and then write an email. Okay. Spending too much time trying to figure out Jesus. I know a lot of Christians who spend the majority of their time trying to figure out Jesus rather than follow Jesus. They're trying to just figure out everything about, they want to know about Jesus. They don't necessarily want to know Jesus. I love Francis Chan gives a, an illustration of like, you could know everything about Steph Curry's basketball career, but if you went to his house, you'd call the cops. You don't know him, you just know about him. A lot of Christians fall into that trap. They know a lot about Jesus, or they're, they're seeking to know more about Jesus, and it's all up here. Their whole spirituality exists right here. It's all about intellectual ascent. What do I need to know in order to be building my house upon rock? Instead of, what do I need to be living? How does my life need to be reflective? Give you another example. My son is about to turn three. He's back there. Hi, Matt. He uh, now can start to help around the house a little bit. He can put toys away. He understands there's different bins for toys. He knows which bins each toy goes in. And oftentimes I find myself trying to be a good parent, and even though it's going to take him ten times longer than me, saying, hey, Matt, can you put away your toys before we do this thing that you want to do? 
before we go see grandma and grandpa or before we go get this treat or whatever. You do this first. But my son is three. So sometimes he tells me all about what he's going to do and doesn't do it. This is another example of not following Jesus, just knowing a lot, a lot about Jesus. Tell me, would, would I be a good parent if he just came to me and said, I picked up all my toys, and I said, show me. And he said, they're all still on the ground. It would be being a bad parent, right? I didn't follow through. What if he just sang songs about how great it would be to pick up toys someday? Oh, Daddy, you've called me to pick up my toys, but I'm not doing it. Right? Does it work? How many people here sing songs about things that they don't do? What if he just thought a lot about it? thought about all the best ways to pick up his toys. Well, if I did all the car's toys first, I would be able to be more efficient. Most Christians, or many Christians, spend so much time trying to figure out Jesus and have all the right answers to the test that they don't actually follow Jesus. And I wonder sometimes when Jesus tells that story about, you know, at the end, the last days, I, I never knew you, he says, right? It's a scary text. I think that's pretty... That's in Matthew. So, you know, that story is all about Jesus. Hey, Jesus, we knew about you. Yeah, but you didn't know me. Second thing Christians try to do, we create idols out of good things. See, I think we like to look down on the people of Canaan who, like, built golden calves, and we're like, no good can come of that. But understand that Jesus called the Pharisees out for idolatry too. And they were pretty good. Pharisees get a bad rap. I mean, if you were back in that time, you'd be like, of all the people trying, they're trying the hardest. They knew their scripture. Creating idols out of good things. Let me give you a couple examples. Uh, first one, you know, as we just said, study and knowing about Jesus. That's one idol. Uh, second idol, human systems. As soon as Jesus fits into your human system, you got Jesus wrong. You missed it. We put so much emphasis and, and, and thought and effort into human systems that sometimes we create idols out of them. We create idols out of economic systems. We create idols out of racial systems. We create idols out of political systems. We think Jesus is on our team when we go to the ballot box. No, Jesus is on none of our teams. That's the thing. As soon as you create an idol, Jesus is no longer present. We also like to make idols out of spiritual forebears. Martin Luther, John Calvin, if you're Catholic, Thomas Aquinas. If you're Covenant, you're like David Nival, P.P. Waldenstrom. For the insiders in the room, you know what I'm talking about? Okay. Billy Graham, we can all agree on that one. We like to create idols out of spiritual heroes in our life, and we go, you know what? 
I'm going to listen to what John Calvin said about Jesus more than I'm going to listen to what Jesus said about me. I'm going to listen to what Billy Graham said about being saved more than I'm going to listen about Jesus about building your house on rocks. Y'all, we could even make an idol out of the Bible. Before you take me out back to throw me off a cliff, understand that that's what the Pharisees had done. We have their whole law right here. And Jesus says, as soon as the law is what you're living for and not your neighbor, you've created an idol. It's a hard word because this is the best place I know to learn about Jesus. But as soon as I make it knowing about Jesus or an idol or about what I'm doing more than who I know and what Jesus calls me to, I've created an idol. Third thing, we focus too much on holiness. And I'm not talking about the spiritual movement of holiness. I'm talking about doing the right stuff. Kind of comes from the other two. See, there are some Christians, they want to know all about Jesus. And they think that's enough. And then there's some Christians who think as long as they know what everybody else said about Jesus, that's the idols, the political systems or the, or the economic systems or the, or the spiritual leaders. As long as we know what p- other people said about Jesus, that's enough. And then there's people on the other end of the spectrum that go, as long as I'm doing all of the right things, it doesn't matter if I know Jesus. That's focusing too much on holiness. I actually, this came up early in my ministry. I was at a, a youth conference and a kid who was very new to the church, but very, very bright. Uh, he, was not, he would not have called himself a Christian. He said, based on everything you've told me, John, I'm supposed to be avoiding sin. And he said, so if that's the case, why don't I just go live in a hut in the desert? I'll probably not sin very much. And I was speechless. Because I didn't yet understand that in order to know Jesus, you've got to go where Jesus was. And sometimes that's going to lead you to do things by accident, by missing the mark. You're going to do things by accident. You're going to find yourself in places you didn't want to be because you followed Jesus there. These are all traps. They're all human systems. So what can we do? What's the, op- what's, what's the uh, alternative? Can you go back to the slide on um, Sermon on the Mount? Thank you. What's the alternative? I think we can start to see people, our neighbors, as Jesus sees them. It's a good place to start. You want to know what Jesus' will is for your life? Start seeing people the way that Jesus saw people, and all of a sudden your will will pop right out, or his will will pop right out in your life. A lot of people say, well, I just, I'm praying for God's will. And I'm like, who are you spending time with? You spending time with the people that Jesus spent time with? No, no, no. I just sit in my room and I pray and I'm waiting for my call. How about you try some calls on and find out if God's going to open or close those doors? A lot of people want to wait on God, which is a beautiful thing. But if you wait on God so long you do nothing that Jesus said that you were supposed to be doing, you'll probably wind up not in a good place asking yourself, what am I supposed to do? See, Scripture also says in the book of John that Jesus came not to judge the world, but to save it. 
I think that as Christians, kind of what I said before, about us worrying about what's going on here, less than we worry about what's going on out there, I think we gotta, we got to start focusing on falling in love with Jesus to such an extent that we start to identify with one another like Jesus identified with us. I want you to just take a moment here. I want you to think about the fact that what Christianity says Jesus was, maybe not what the world said Jesus was, but what Christianity said that Jesus was, was the divine creator of the universe who, in Philippians says, kenosis, lowered himself to become one of us put on skin for us. If that is not an image of identification, I don't know what is. See, Jesus was so in love with us. He was so in love with the world that he could not bear to stay away. And instead he goes, I want to know, I want to know what it's like to be a human because that is loving your neighbor knowing what it is like to be them. He did so by identifying with us, by feeling what we feel, by seeing what we see, by hurting how we hurt, by being tempted how we are tempted. But how many of us like to spend more time looking at people and trying to figure out why they're in the situation that they are instead of just identifying with them in the situation? instead of just meeting them and going, you know what? I don't know why you're in the place that you're in, but you're hurting. That's what Jesus did. said, I don't know, I, you know, you guys have messed this whole thing up. You're hurting, but I'm going to come down and I'm going to hurt with you. And here's the thing, at the end of the day, all those things, when you truly identify, when you truly understand what it's like to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, when you truly start treating other people's brothers and sisters like they're your own brother and sister, like their fate is tied up in your fate, like other people's children are your children, doesn't matter if they look different biologically, when you start seeing that other people's parents are your parents and other people's grandparents are your grandparents, then you fight for them. Because you don't stop fighting for your own. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, look, if you get caught up in anything, any otherworldly system, trying to figure out the, the theological powers of the universe, if you spend all your time trying to get knowledge, if you spend all your time trying to do holiness, if you spend all your time trying to avoid hell, if you spend all your time trying to bury yourself in the life of other spiritual leaders who you feel like have done it, then you miss it because you don't love your neighbor. Loving your neighbor means looking at them and saying, I am you, you are me, and we're in this together. And the alternative to that is being separate. Hear that. The alternative to being connected to the people who Jesus identifies with is separation from Jesus. He says, if you're not inviting them to your party, you're not inviting me. And I don't know you. So think on it. 